kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Welcome to Auntie Nanny's Halloween episode. Uh, with me this evening is the bubbly and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you tonight, Miss Jeannie? I'm doing good. Happy Halloween, Miss Jan. Happy Halloween. And the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because after three or four years now, I'm still not paying him. Very. How are you this evening, Very? I'm good. Hope everyone's good. having a good Samhain. Demortui nil nisi bonum. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Start off with a bit of Latin. Just get ease people in. You know. Oh, ease people. In. Yeah, ease people in until we get to the parts of Lovecraft where I have a hard time pronouncing things. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I didn't really want to tell the traditional story that uh, I usually tell every week, where Michael Morris put it ever so eloquently in the chat. Once upon a time, an evil jack-o'-lantern and a mean old witch decided to run for president of Jesus' land. Um, so I decided I was done with that. I, I think we could all use some cheering up. I I've heard enough of politics to give me a headache for about the next seven years. Anybody else with me? Yes, ma'am. All right. So uh, I see Alex popping around in chat. I don't know if he's going to come on or not, but... Um, we're very casual here, so I guess we'll start. Um, and I, I think we'll start, actually, we'll start right at the top. That makes things a little bit easier, I think. Beyond the Wall of Sleep by H.P. Lovecraft. Beyond the Wall of Sleep. I've often wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasionally titanic significance of dreams and of the obscure world to which they belong. Whilst the greater number of our nocturnal visions are perhaps no more than faint and fantastic reflections of our waking experiences, Freud, uh, Freud <laughs> to the contrary with his puerile symbolism, there are still certain remainder whose immundane and ethereal character permit of no ordinary interpretation and whose vaguely exciting and disquieting effect suggests possible 
minute glimpses into a sphere of mental existence no less important than physical life, yet separated from that life by an all but impassable barrier. From my experience, I can no doubt that man, when lost to terrestrial consciousness, is indeed sojourning in another uncorporeal life of far different nature from the life we know, and of which only the slightest and most indistinct memories linger after waking. From those blurred and fragmentary memories, we may infer much, yet prove little. We may guess that in dreams, life, matter, and vitality, as the earth knows such things, are not necessarily constant, and that time and space do not exist as our waking selves comprehend them. Sometimes, I believe, that this less than material life is our truer life, and that our vain presence on the terraqueous globe is itself secondary or merely a or merely virtual phenomenon. It was from a youthful reverie, reverie filled with speculations of this sort that I arose one afternoon in the winter of 1900 to 1901 when to the state psychopathic institution in which I served as an intern was bought a man whose case has ever since haunted me so unceasingly. His name as given on the records was Joe Slater or Slater and his appearance was that of a typical Denzin of the Catskill Mountain region, one of those strange repellent scions of a primitive colonial peasant stock whose isolation for nearly three centuries in the hilly fastness of a little-traveled countryside has caused them to sink into a kind of barbaric degeneracy rather than advance with their more fortunately placed brethren of the thickly settled districts. Among these odd folk, who correspond exactly to be the descendant elements of, quote, white trash in the South, law and morals are non-existent, and their general mental status is probably below that of any other section of Native American people. Um, as a side note, H.P. Lovecraft was a horrible racist. This was one of the least racist stories I could find. Joe Slater, who had come to the institution in the vigilant custody of four state policemen, and who was described as a highly dangerous character, certainly presented no evidence of his perilous disposition when I first beheld him. Though well above the middle stature and of a somewhat brawny frame, he was given an absurd appearance of harmless stupidity by the pale, sleepy blueness of his small, watery eyes, the scantness of his neglected and never-shaven growth of yellow beard, and the listless drooping of his heavy nether lip. His age was unknown, since among his kind, neither family records nor permanent family ties exist, but from the baldness of his head in the front, and from the decayed condition of his teeth, the head surgeon wrote him down as a man of about 40. From the medical and court documents, we learned all that could be gathered of his case. This man, a vagabond, hunter, and trapper, had always been strange in the eyes of his primitive associates. He had habitually slept at night beyond the ordinary time and upon waking would often talk of unknown things in a manner so bizarre as to inspire fear even in the hearts of an unimaginative populace. Not that his form of language was all that unusual, for he never spoke save in the debased pathos of his environment, but the tone and tenor of his utterances were of such mysterious wildness that none might listen without apprehension. He himself was generally as terrified and baffled as his auditors, and within 
an hour after wakening, would forget all that he had said, or at least all that had caused him to say what he did, relapsing into a bovine, half-amiable normality like that of the other hill-dwellers. As Slater grew older, it appeared his matunial aberrations had gradually increased in frequency and violence, till about a month before his arrival at the institution had occurred the shocking tragedy which causes arrest by the authorities. One day near noon, after a profound sleep begun in a whiskey debauch at about five of the previous afternoon, the man had roused himself most suddenly with odulation so horrible and unearthly that they brought several neighbors to his cabin, a filthy star where he dwelt with a family as indescribable as himself. Rushing out into the snow, he had flung his arms aloft and commended a series of leaps directly upward into the air, the while shouting his determination to reach some big, big cabin with brightness in the roof and walls and floor and the loud queer music far away. As two men of moderate size sought to restrain him, he had struggled with maniacal force and fury, screaming of his desire and need to kill a certain thing that shines and shakes and laughs. At length, after temporarily felling one of his detainers with a sudden blow, he had flung himself upon the other with a demonic ecstasy of bloodthirstiness, shrieking fiendishly that he would jump high in the air and burn his way through anything that stopped him. Family and neighbors had now fled in a panic, and when the more courageous of them returned, Slater was gone, leaving behind an unrecognizable pulp-like thing that had been a living man but an hour before. None of the mountaineers had dared pursue him, and it is likely they would have welcomed his death from the cold. But when several mornings later they heard his screams from a distant ravine, they realized he had somehow managed to survive, and that his removal, in one way or another, would be necessary. Then had followed an armed searching party whose purpose, whatever it may have been originally, became that of a sheriff's posse, after one of the seldom popular state troopers had by accident observed then questioned, and finally joined the Seekers. On the third day, Slater was found unconscious in the hollow of a tree and taken to the nearest jail, where alienists, alienists were kind of the doctors that kind of examined people in those days. From Albany, examined him as soon as his senses returned. To them, he had told the temple story. He had, he said, gone to sleep one afternoon about sundown after drinking much liquor, he had awakened to find himself standing bloody-handed in the snow before his cabin, the mangled corpse of his neighbor, Peter Slater, at his feet. Horrified, he had taken to the woods in a vague effort to escape from the scene of what must have been his crime. Beyond these things, he seemed to know nothing, nor could the expert questioning of his interrogators bring out a single additional fact. That night, Slater slept quietly, and the next morning he awakened with no singular feature, save a certain alienation of expression. Dr. Baynard, who had been watching the patient, thought he noticed in the pale blue eyes a certain gleam of peculiar quality, and in the flaccid lips an all but imperceptible tightening, as of intelligent determination. But when questioned, Slater relapsed into the habitual vacancy of the mountaineer, and only reiterated what he had said on the preceding day. On the third morning occurred the first man, first of the man's mental attacks. After some show of uneasiness and sleep, he burst forth into a frenzy so powerful that the combined efforts of four men were needed to bind him into a straitjacket. The alienists listened with keen attention to his words, since their curiosity had been aroused to a high pitch by the suggestive, yet mostly conflicting and incoherent stories of his family and neighbors. Slater raved for upward of 15 minutes, babbling in his backwoods dialect of 
green edifices of light, oceans of space, strange music, and shadowy mountains and valleys. But most of all, did he dwell upon some mysterious blazing entity that shook and laughed and mocked him. This vast, vague personality seemed to have done him a terrible wrong, and to kill it in triumphant revenge was his paramount desire. In order to reach it, he said, he would soar through the abysses of emptiness, burning every obstacle that stood in his way. Thus ran his discourse until with great suddenness he ceased. The fire of madness died from his eyes, and in dull wonder he looked at his questioners and asked why he was bound. Dr. Bernard unbuckled the leather harness and did not restore it till night, when he succeeded in persuading Slater to don it of his own volition, for his own good. The man had now admitted that he sometimes talked queerly, though he knew not why. Within a week or two more attacks appeared, but from them the doctors learned little. On the source of Slater's visions, they speculated at length, for since he could neither read nor write, and had apparently never heard a legend or fairy tale, his gorgeous Im imagery was quite inexplicable. That it could not come from any known myth or romance was made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself in its own simple manner. He raved of things he did not understand and could not interpret, things which he claimed to have experienced, but which he could not have learned through any normal or connected narration. The alienists soon agreed that the abnormal dreams were the foundation of the trouble, dreams whose vividness could, for a time, completely dominate the waking mind of this basically inferior man. With due formality, Slater was tried for murder, acquitted on the grounds of insanity, and committed to the institution wherein I held so humble a post. I've said that I am a constant spectator concerning dream life, and from this you may judge of the eagerness to which I applied myself to the study of this new patient as soon as I had fully ascertained the facts of his case. He seemed to sense a certain friendliness in me, bore no doubt of the interest I could not conceal, and the gentle manner in which I questioned him. Not that he ever recognized me during his attacks, when I hung breathlessly upon his chaotic but cosmic word pictures, but he knew me in his quiet hours, when he would sit by his barred window weaving baskets of straw and willow, and perhaps pining for the mountain freedom he could no longer again enjoy. His family never called to see him, probably found another temporary head after the manner of decadent mountain folk. By degrees, I commented, I commenced to feel an overwhelming wonder at the mad and fantastic conceptions of Joe Slater. The man himself was pitiably inferior in mentality and language alike, but his glowing titanic visions, though described in a barbarous disjointed jargon, were assuredly things which only a superior or even exceptional brain could conceive. How, I often asked myself, could the stolid imagination of a Catskill degenerate conjure up sights whose very possession argued a lurking spark of genius? How could any backwards dullard have gained so much of an idea of those glittering realms of supernatural radiance and space about which Slater ranted in his furious delirium? More and more I inclined to the belief in the pitiful personality who cringed before me lay the disjointed nucleus of something beyond my own comprehension, something infinitely beyond the comprehension of my more experienced but less imaginative medical and scientific colleagues. And yet I could extract nothing definite from the man. The sum of all my investigation was that in a kind of semi-corporeal dream life, Slater wandered or floated through resplendent and prodigious valleys, meadows, gardens, and cities, and palaces of light, 
in a region unbound and unknown to man, that there was <clears throat> there he was no peasant or degenerate, but a creature of importance and vivid life, moving profoundly and dominantly, and yet checked only by a certain deadly enemy who seemed to be a being of visible yet ethereal structure, and who did not appear to be of human shape, since Slater never referred to it as a man or as aught save a thing. This thing had done Slater some hideous but unnamed wrong, which the maniac, if maniac he were, yearned to avenge. From the manner in which Slater alluded to their dealings, I judged that he and the luminous thing had met on equal terms, that in his dream existence the man himself was a luminous thing of the same race as his enemy. This impression was sustained by his frequent references to flying through space and burning all that impeded his progress. Yet these conceptions were formulated in rustic words, wholly inadequate to convey them, a circumstance which drove me to the conclusion that if a dream world indeed existed, oral language was not its medium for the transmission of thought. And could it be that the dream soul inhabiting this inferior body was desperately struggling to speak of things which the simple and halting tongue of dullards could not utter? Could it be that I was face to face with the intellectual emanations which would explain the mystery if I could but learn to discover and read them? I did not tell the older physicians of these things, for middle age is skeptical, cynical, and disinclined to accept new ideas. Besides, the head of the institution had lately warned me in his paternal way that I was overworking, that my mind needed rest. It had long been my belief that human thought consists basically of atomic or molecular motion convertible to either waves or radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. This belief had early led me to contemplate the possibility of telepathy or mental communication by means of suitable apparatus, and I had, in my college days, prepared a set of transmitting and receiving instruments, somewhat similar to the cumbrous devices employed in wireless tele telegraphy at that crude pre-radio period. These I had tested with a fellow student, but achieving no result, had soon packed them away with other scientific odds and ends or possible future use. Now, in my intense desire to probe into the dream life of Joe Slater, I sought these instruments again and spent several days repairing them for action. When they were complete once more, I missed no opportunity in their trial. At each outburst of Slater's violence, I would fit the transmitter to his forehead and the receiver to my own, consistently making delicate adjustments for various hypothetical wavelengths of intellectual energy. I had but little notion of how the thought impressions would, if successfully conveyed, arouse an intelligent response in my brain, but I felt certain I could detect and interpret them. Accordingly, I concluded my experiments, though informing no one of their nature. It was on the 21st day of February 1901 that the thing occurred. As I look back across the years, I realize how unreal it seems, and sometimes wonder if old Dr. Fenton was right when he charged it all to my excited imagination. I recall that he listened to me with great kindness and patience when I told him, but afterwards gave me a nerve powder and arranged for a half year's vacation, on which I departed the next week. That fateful night, I was wildly agitated and perturbed, for despite the excellent care he had received, Joe Slater was unmistakably dying. Perhaps it was his mountain freedom that he missed, or perhaps the turmoil in his brain had grown too acute for his rather sluggish physique. But at all events, the flame of vitality flickered low in the decadent body. He was drowsy near the end, and as darkness fell, he dropped off into a troubled sleep. 
I did not strap on the straitjacket as was customary when he slept, since I saw he was too feeble to be dangerous, even if he woke in a mental disorder once more before passing away. But I did place upon his head and mine the two ends of my cosmic radio, hoping against hope for a first and last message from the dream world in the brief time remaining. In the cell with us was one nurse, a mediocre fellow who did not understand the purpose of the apparatus or think to inquire into my course. As the hours wore on, I saw his head droop awkwardly in sleep, but I did not disturb him. I myself, lulled by the rhythmical breathing of the healthy and dying man, must have nodded a little later. The sound of the weird lyric melody was what aroused me. Chords, vibrations, and harmonic ecstasies echoed passionately on every hand, while on my ravished sight burst the stupendous spectacle of ultimate beauty. Walls, columns, and actraves of living fire blazed effulgently around the spot where I seemed to float in the air, extending upward to an infinitely high vaulted dome of indescribable splendor. Blending with this display of palatial magnificence, magnificence, or rather supplanting it at times in kaleidoscopic rotation, were glimpses of wide plains and graceful valleys, high mountains, and inviting grottoes, covered with every lovely attribute of scenery to which my delighted eyes could conceive of, yet formed wholly of some glowing ethereal plastic entity, which inconsistently partook as much of spirit as of matter. As I gazed, I perceived that my own brain held the key to these enchanting metamorphoses, for each vista which appeared in me was the one my changing mind most wished to behold. Amidst this Elysian realm, I dwelt not as a stranger, for each sight and sound was familiar to me, just as it had been for uncounted eons of eternity before, and would be for like eternities to come. Then the resplendent aura of my brother of light drew near and held co-equally with me soul to soul in the silent and perfect interchange of thought. The hour was of approaching triumph, for it was not my fellow being escaping at last from a degrading periodic bondage, escaping forever and preparing to follow the accursed oppressor even unto uttermost fields of ether, that upon it might be wrought a flaming cosmic vengeance which would shake the spheres. We floated thus for a time when I perceived a sight blurring and fading of the objects around us, as though some force were recalling me to earth, or at least wanted to go. The form near me seemed to feel a change also. It gradually bought its discourse towards a conclusion, and itself prepared to quit the scene, fading from my sight at a rate somewhat less rapid than that of other objects. A few more thoughts were exchanged, and I knew the luminous one and I were being rehauled to bondage, though for my brother of light it would be the last time. The sorry planet shell being well nigh spent, in less than an hour my fellow would be free to pursue the oppressor along the Milky Way and past hither stars to the very confines of infinity. A well-defined shock separates my impression of the fading scene of light from my sudden and somewhat shamefaced awakening, and straightening up in my chair as I saw the dying figure on the couch move hesitantly. Joe Slater was indeed awakening, though probably for the last time. As I looked more closely, I saw in the sallow cheeks shown spots of color which had never been present. The lips, too, seemed unusual, being tightly compressed as if by the force of a stronger character than it had been Slater's. The whole face finally began to grow tense, and the head turned restlessly with closed eyes. I did not rouse the sleeping nurse, but readjusted the slightly disarranged headband of my telepathic radio, 
intent to catch any parting message the dreamer might have to deliver. All at once, the head turned sharply in my direction and the eyes fell open, causing me to stare in blank amazement at what I beheld. The man who had been Joe Slater, the cat-scaled descendant, was gazing at me with a pair of luminous, expanding eyes, whose blue seemed subtly to have deepened. Neither mania nor degeneracy was visible in that gaze, and I felt beyond a doubt I was viewing a face behind which lay an active mind of high order. At this juncture, my brain became aware of a steadily external influence operating upon it. I closed my eyes to concentrate my thoughts once more profoundly and was rewarded by the positive knowledge that my long-sought mental message had come to me at last. Each transmitted idea formed rapidly in my mind, and though no actual language was employed, my habitual association of conception and expression was so great that I seemed to be receiving the message in ordinary English. Joe Slater is dead, came the sole petrifying voice of an agency from beyond the wall of sleep. My eyes opened, sought the couch of pain and curious horror, but the blue eyes were still calmly gazing, and the countenance was still intelligently animated. He is better dead, for he was unfit to bear the active intellect of cosmic entity. His gross body could not undergo the needed adjustments between ethereal life and planet life. He was too much an animal, too little a man, yet is through his deficiency that you have come to discover me for the cosmic planet and souls rightly should never meet he has been in my torment and diurnal prison for 42 of your terrestrial years i am an entity like that which you yourself become in the freedom of dreamless sleep i am your brother of light and have floated with you in the effigent valleys it is not permitted for me to tell you your waking earth self of your real self but we are all roamers of vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year I may be dwelling in the Egypt, which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of Sanchan, which is to come 3,000 years hence. You and I have drifted into worlds that reel about the red Acurtius and dwell in the bodies of insect philosophers that crawl profoundly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the Earth self know life and its extent? How little indeed ought it know for its own tranquility. Of the oppressor I cannot speak. You on earth have unwittingly felt its distant presence. You, without knowing, idly gave the blinking beacon the name of Anglo, the demon star. It is to meet and conquer the oppressor that I have vainly striven for eons, held back by bodily encumbrances. Tonight I go as a nemesis bearing just and blazingly cataclysmic vengeance. Watch me in the sky close by the demon star. I cannot speak longer for the body of Joe Slater grows cold and rigid, and the coarse brains are ceasing to vibrate as I wish. You have been my only friend on this planet, the only soul who sense and seek for me within the resplendent form which lies on this couch. We shall meet again, perhaps in the shining mists of Orion's sword, perhaps on a bleak plateau in a prehistoric Asia, perhaps in unremembered dreams tonight, perhaps in some other form at neon hence, when the solar system shall have been swept away. At this point, the thought waves abruptly cease, the pale eyes of the dreamer, or can I say dead man, commence to gaze fishly. In a half stupor, I crossed over to the couch and felt over his wrist, but found it cold, stiff, and pulseless. The sallow cheeks paled again, and the thick lips fell open, disclosing the repulsively rotten fangs of the degenerate Joe Slater. I shivered, pulled the blanket over the hideous face, and awakened the nurse. 
and I left the cell and went silently to my room. I had an instant, non-accountable craving for sleep, whose dreams I would not remember. The climax? What plain tale of science can post of such a rhetorical effect? I have merely set down certain things appealing to me as facts, allowing you to consume them as you will. As I've already admitted, my superior, Dr. Fenton, denies the reality of everything I've related. He vows that I was broken down with nervous strain and badly in need of a long vacation on full pay, which he so generously gave me. He assures me on his professional honor that Joe Slater was but a low-grade paranoiac whose fantastic notions must have come from the crude hereditary folktales which circulated even in the most decadent of communities. All this he tells me, yet I cannot forget what I saw in the sky in the night after Slater died. Lest you think me a biased witness, another pen must add this final testimony, which may perhaps supply the climax you expect. I will quote the following account of the star of Nova Persei, verbatim from the pages of that eminent astronomical authority, Professor Garnet P. Cervasis. On February 22, 1901, a marvelous new star, star was discovered by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh, not far from Engel. No star had been visible at that point before. Within 24 hours, the stranger had become so bright that it outshone Capella. In a week or two, it had visibly faded, and in the course of a few months, it was hardly discernible with the naked eye. Everything's coming up thonic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's very hard to read that, just not being able to take a break, not being able to say anything, and I'm like, oh, God, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. Lovecraft is incredibly wordy. Yes. That's why I only picked a short story. <laughs> Most of the horror writers tend to get very um, purply prose, shall we say. Yeah. Well, and and some things never change, Jan. Have you ever read a Dean Koontz story? Some, yeah. Okay, and here's my thing. I think he's a phenomenal writer. I really do. Except in the first chapter of one of his stories, he will the guy is walking down the sidewalk and and comes upon this tree that is more gray than brown in the bark and, and he goes on for like five fucking pages about this tree and the moss on the tree and on and on and on and on, and on right so this tree is really important to the story correct exactly. no no you get to the end and he just evidently had a love affair with a fucking tree for no point at all. Uh, i think stephen king's like that in a lot of ways um the stand is probably one of my favorite books right and it's so densely wordy that I had a hard time plowing through it. Not that I didn't love it. It's a great book. Just really, really hard to get through. And like you said, I think horror writers have that. And not just horror, science fiction. Because Beyond the Walls of Sleep is science fiction. It's not so much horror. It, it's a creepier kind of tale. But um, they have this need to paint pictures vivid pictures in your mind i think that's maybe the one thing they have in common but it's yeah, fine, yeah but i, I didn't need five pages about the fucking tree <laughs> <laughs> be happy i picked that and didn't pick call of cthulhu did still you, be you, getting, getting, 
You brought up Stephen King. Did you see Flit- Flitzy has been posting all of his old Halloween costumes this I week? Have. And um, one was Pennywise the Clown. Mm-hmm. And and I said, well, hello, Pennywise. And people were talking. They are talking about what a joke Pennywise was. Pennywise wasn't terrifying at all. And I'm like, you sorry-ass people have never read the book. <laughs> because Pennywise in book form has got to be the most terrifying thing I've ever read in my entire life. It it caused me more nightmares throughout my life than anything I have ever seen or any other thing that I have ever read. Um, they made a joke out of it with the TV movie. That was really pathetic. But, yeah, yeah. If, if people like seriously scary stuff, Stephen King's It is got to be, hands down, the, the best scary book that I've ever read in my life. It is um, very scary. I have to admit it. It is very scary. But, I mean, it was the transition from Pennywise to the spider. You know, um, that was, I don't, I don't, I think maybe that was a poor way to go with things. Do you know what I mean? At least for the TV movies at the time. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, you, you have to read the book. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) And you tell somebody, oh, well, this book was the scariest thing. It it really was. Um, And to this day, it is the only Stephen King book I've not ever read more than once. (laughs) To this day, I've only ever read it once. Okay. I'm just glad glad, right for really scary. I'm I'm just glad no film director has ever even thought of taking Weave World and making a film out of it. That's Clive Barker. Because oh. that, that's, that's not just, that's, that goes beyond scary. It's deeply disturbing, some of the stuff in that book. Well, Clive Barker stuff is kind of disturbing. I mean, yeah. I think it's supposed, supposed to be. Yeah, it is. Um, he likes freaking you know, people out. He does, you know. And I think what really, I hated the decision to cast Scott Bakula as the magician. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I like Scott Bakula. He was Wait, are we great talking one. about the guy from, from Quantum Leap? Quantum Leap, yeah. Um, he played a magician in one of the Barker um, movies. The Books of Blood, I think that one yes, was based was, on. Yeah. The Books of Blood are a great read, by the way. Yeah. Um, a little bit disturbing. But... Um, this thing that <laughs> this magician that finally ends up sort of in thrall <laughs> to Pinhead later on um, is not Scott Bakula in any way, shape, or form. So the decision to cast him in the film was just ridiculous in my Yeah, mind. I mean, if you're going to cast anything to do with Clive Barker, you need to get all the creepiest actors on the planet. And just pick. pick. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking like Pinhead in Hellraiser Pinhead? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. So, like, There's a whole series of books built based on the uh, the battles between... Um, it's basically between chaos and order. Yeah. Uh, Pinhead's on the side of order. Which should Leviathan. scare the shit out of you. Yes. <laughs> should scare the shit out of you. Yeah, that does scare the shit out of you. Yeah, you you wouldn't think so. The the, the, the night breeder that, chaos. 
the creature that comes to you with pins nailed in his face and goes, I have such sights to show you. Um, that is not something you think is in charge of order, but imagine how bad chaos is when that's order. Well, i say the closest you got was the, the um, night breed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, oh, they're, they follow chaos. They did do a film of it and did have some inspired casting on that one. Uh, Button Face was played by David Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, Cronenberg is a sick man. Yeah. Yeah, he is not right. If you've ever... Um, well, if you've... Very pick a Cronenberg film. <laughs> uh, God. Uh, existence. Right. Uh, he did that, but didn't... He did... Um, it wasn't Cronenberg who did Crash, was it? Yeah. Yeah, Cronenberg did Crash. The, the film about people who are sexually aroused by car crashes. That's some freaky shit. <laughs> yeah, it caused a um, lot. Of, it caused it got banned a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, and it's it really not that graphic, considering no. not not this... compared to as usual. Yeah, yeah. I for for Cronenberg, it's almost like a PG thirteen film, which <laughs> <laughs> is saying something. That man is not right. Um. So, what's your favorite scary movie? I don't really don't. have a favorite because I don't find movies scary. <laughs> oh, no, I just I don't do scary movies in general. You know, um, the movie that freaked me out the most as a child, and still kind of does, is The Birds. Hitchcock's The Birds. Oh, um, I watched it like two weeks ago. Yeah, try being six and watching that, <laughs> and then later on, try moving to a place where. <clears throat> When the pepper bushes get really full in the summertime, um, they wait and they leave the peppers on the pepper bushes. They're like little pepper berries. They let them ferment. And then in the fall, they eat a bunch of them. And I don't know whether they're hot and I don't know whether the birds get drunk, but they start flying en masse and they're crashing into stuff. They're flying upside down. They're acting like a bunch of drunks. And that, that's some creepy shit to see. Especially if you're somebody who is scared of the birds. <laughs> well, and the, I think the thing that um, ever freaked me out, like I said, I said before, we didn't have MTV. Mm-hmm. The town that I lived in, I never saw MTV until I was a, a legal adult in, right. in, in Dallas, Texas. So that should tell you a few things to start with. I had never seen Tales of the Crypt or anything of the sort. My brother got me all shitted up and made me watch Creep Show. That fucked with my head horribly. Um, to this day, cockroaches, I think, are the most creepiest bug I have ever seen on the planet. And that is because of <laughs> Creep Show. Well, you know they're going to live forever. <laughs> that's that's the creepiest thing about them. They live without their damn heads for 34 days. But yeah, no, Creep Show was kind of creepy. Not too, I mean, too and, it, and it wasn't all that scary. It, it really wasn't. I mean, Creep Show is is kind of like dark humor. Yeah. But yeah. yet that, that movie messed with my head. And it was that very last story. 
the one with the 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 germophobic guy and and the guy yeah that one just fucked me all up <laughs> see that that's why i don't find horror movies scary because my sense of humor is so dark uh really it horror films don't get there I mean I got in trouble off a girlfriend for laughing during Hostel and you many know, other scary movies she tried to get me to watch you know, I just find them funny Hostel Hostel is torture porn I don't actually yeah. consider that a scary movie um, it's a slasher type film yeah Yeah. No. although yeah. Pe people you see get freaked out by people in white coats cutting things up so yeah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah hostile is not exactly great for that um but i don't consider that horror um eli roth is just sick um yeah. was it green the the cannibal movie he did oh yeah it's i can't a... remember the name of it but yeah. yeah yeah that was green inferno was that the name of it I Do you I remember, oh, good Lord, and this would have been in the 70s, so maybe you won't remember either, but it used to be at the at the drive-in movie theater, um, which, by the way, is still in operation back where I used to live. Yeah, um, they would show, like, a kid's Halloween movie first, and then they would show an adult Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad would always, now you two lay down and go to sleep, blah, da, 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 da. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you had to <laughs> between the, there was this movie and, and th this guy, I don't know how it worked out, but the, this girl's father put a mutated snake or something in the shower with this boy that liked his daughter and turned him into a giant fucking snake. You know what I'm talking about? No. I'll have to I'll have to set Flitzy on the goal of finding out what the name of this movie was. Um but and then um you remember remember Death Ship? The original Death Ship? Yeah. Where the people the people went and they got in the shower and the shower sucked the blood out of the bottom of their feet and sprayed it back out on top of them. Remember that? I think yeah. I remember Yes. Yeah. Scenes from it, yeah. And 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 well, no, I mean that one. That one was kind of weird too. But I guess I've just never really been into scary movies. I don't know if it's because they were all the graphics and shit were so cheesy in them, and if I read a scary book, the the pictures in my head were way better. I I don't know. I can read scary books. I don't really care for scary movies. Well, yeah, I mean, book books are in many ways better for horror. Yeah, because it's your own imagination that, <laughs> that's building the images for you. Well, yeah, sure. that in the in the author's imagination too, because I mean Stephen King is a big one for that. Because um, Cujo, half of what made Cujo so terrifying was the fact that he was telling you what this dog was thinking, and and the thoughts going through the dog's mind weren't "I need to kill these people" at all. You know what I mean? It was the dog thought it was doing its job protecting its family. And that that just made it even even worse. Where in the book, in the movie rather, it was just, okay, this dog got rabies, now it's killing everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I never read Cujo. 
I never really had a desire to. Uh, I was horribly affected by the book and the movie Sounder when I was a kid, and I've never been able to watch or read anything horror-like about animals ever since. And and Sounder wasn't a horror film. Well, and then Cujo would really bother you because at the end of this book, I mean, you you feel horrible for this dog. You know, it's not like Pet Cemetery where you're like, nope, that cat just needs to fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, at the end of Cujo, you have this horrible sadness for Cujo. Yeah. Um, like I said, uh, at the end of Sounder, Sounder goes almost the whole quarantine period um, and you think he's not rabid, but he is. And the father has to go out and kill him. And that was just, that killed me. That just killed me. So, like I said, I haven't been able to do or anything about animals. Uh, Pet Cemetery was an exception. And you're right, the cat needed to die. Uh, so did the <laughs> child uh, and the wife. And yeah, anybody buried in that pet cemetery needed to die. Yeah, Gage was kind of creepy little kid. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> My favorite um, um, Stephen King film adaptation is Needful Things. Not the whole rest of the film is not good, but it has Max von Sydow doing a brilliant job. <laughs> oh, being creepy, being creepy as hell. Well. And, and I had people um, when I was reading Needful Things, probably the fifth or sixth or seventh time. I don't know. I mean, I had every Stephen King book ever printed in hardback. My sister, my Mormon sister, was not happy when I when I passed them on to her eldest son, um, but he really was. So that was all there was to that. But yet, I had people say, you know, I tried to read that book and it didn't make sense to me. And I'm like, well, have you read all of the other Stephen King stuff? And they're like, well, no. Why? Well, because you will not understand needful things. You you just will not understand this book if you haven't read all of the other ones that are looped into this. You you needed you really needed that background to to understand it. Yeah, you need to know about Castle Rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my favorite because Stephen King is the master of consequence. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You wear this thing. Here's what you're gonna get. Is probably thinner. The ending of thinner just it's just gut-wrenching where his wife and daughter eat the pie you know what i mean yeah that 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 got to me um and you know i don't think the movie was anywhere near as good as the book just saying i i don't think the uh, the only thing stephen king has ever written that they did a good job of um, is only because it wasn't written to be a book. It was written to be a screenplay, and that's The Green Mile. It's, it's the only one that was better on film than it was in print. Well, it, it, what it shares in common is when you look at it in book form, it's 52 pages. 
the only thing it shares in common with another film that is better in film than in book form um and not not from the horror genre um dances with wolves is better on film than it is in book form book form it's 97 pages um and yet the direction of the film and the story just are so much better on the big screen than they are in this little tiny book form so you know very few times i will say a movie is better than the book um and those are i agree with you uh, about the green mile by the way amazing book uh shawshank redemption was that also stephen king yes yes uh also a really good film i've never read the book Jeannie, have you read it yes ma'am and i actually with stephen king i actually read everything in the order that it was actually written not necessarily mm -hmm. published and and I will say that sober Stephen King is is a good author, um, and I'm not wishing the man to go back to being an alcoholic. But what I am saying is, drunk Stephen King was way more terrifying than sober Stephen King. Um, the the sequel to The Shining, uh, mm -hmm. what what is it? Doctor Good, Doctor Doctor Sleep, yeah, not scary. Good book, not anywhere near scary like. The Shining. Yeah. Well, that well, was the, the Shining gets my my award, by the way, for most annoying film adaptation. Because <laughs> the film's all right, but it's not. It's nowhere near as good as the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, The Shining is actually really terrifying. That poor kid in the book. You, you just feel so bad well, for him. everyone because... in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone in the book. But the, the child, especially in the book, is just so screwed up from the entity. Yeah. Which is basically... I don't know how to describe it. I know the entity is the hotel, but it's not the hotel. It's the spirits that kind of haunt the walls of the hotel and yet even the hotel seems to be this creepy thing i, I don't hey, know hey, you, it's you not just the it. hotel it's the grounds no, as well as well yeah i mean but christine is like that though too you know the, they they screwed up christine so bad they went so far away from the book making the movie to try to adapt it to something that people could see on film that it it just wasn't if you'd read the book first, you're watching this movie and you're going, what the fuck? That ain't right. That, that, that's not right. What is wrong with you people? That's not how this is supposed to be. Right. But, and that's because they go so deep into your mind. They go so deep into the minds of the characters and, and what the actual evil is that you, you, a lot of the times you just can't adapt it to screen. And so, you know, I... A lot of times I won't even watch them because I have learned, I have, I have learned well that they just fuck up my favorite books. <laughs> I really did. Uh, I agree. The stand is scary as shit because yes, it could possibly happen. Um, it, not 
exactly as Stephen King wrote it, but uh, yeah, there there is a possibility of of a plague type thing like that that could happen, and that would be really really bad. Um, but oh, uh, people who like horror films, uh, go go watch uh, Guillermo El Toro's early work. He started out horror films. He um, and they're you can always they're they're go. quite horrible. Guillermo del Toro has, I don't, has anybody ever seen his house? <laughs> yeah. The, the photos of his house, he has a house just of the weirdest, the creepiest, the strangest stuff you've ever seen. But what I, I love is Guillermo del Toro has an art book and it shows all the creatures that he's um, drawn for film. And my favorite is probably the vampire from Blade Trinity where its mouth splits open like four ways. Um, he oh, has, yeah, has the a, dogs in the, yeah, the dogs, the Pomeranian, the vampire Pomeranian. Pomeranian. <laughs> and, well, they had, they had Rottweilers too, but the Pomeranian was the worst one. Yeah. 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 Uh, actually, I really liked Blade Trinity. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was actually quite good in it. He's got, He's got dead on comic timing, which um, you get to see more in focus in Deadpool, which is also very good. And I would uh, say skip the Green Lantern for Ryan Reynolds films. Stinky. <laughs> Even Ryan Reynolds basically tells people not to watch the Green, <laughs> Green Lantern film. It, it's pretty bad. It, yes. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, if you um, have to, yeah, but, you know, he did... He did redeem himself with Deadpool, though, because no, Deadpool no. is fucking hysterical. Deadpool is a phenomenal film. I have watched Deadpool probably 15 times. It's just fantastic. The Green Lantern was just kind of dumb. The, the weird thing about Deadpool is, in many ways, the best bits are the opening titles and the <laughs> after credit sequence. <laughs> oh yeah, I made my husband. I mean, because Paul's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Are you watching these? Are you watching these opening credits? You have to watch this. And we rewound it, and he's he's like, oh no, that shit's just funny. I'm like, okay, see now when I tell you to pay attention to this part, <laughs> I mean it. It's for a reason. Yeah, great film. Great film. Ryan Reynolds was great in it. Ryan Reynolds is uh, Deadpool. And there's probably is going to be another one. So yeah. Well, there is going to be another one, but the yeah. man who... Well, you realize the director of Deadpool uh -huh. is the one that leaked that test footage that convinced yeah. the studio to finally make it. Um, and that man, they're dumping him for the second Deadpool. So I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. Um, well, as long as they still have a decent writer <laughs> <laughs> and, and the producers know what they're doing, yeah... Doesn't it doesn't? It's not a huge deal about not having the same director because well, there Thomas, are lots of good directors. So, Margot, you don't like Thomas Harris books? <laughs> um, isn't that the man who wrote Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just Silence of the Lambs. It's uh, the 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 ending book the last book of silence of the lambs is just the sequel to it's just terrible um 
the first book where you first meet Dr. Lecter, is it Red Dragon? That was pretty terrifying. The guy, the guy who yeah. would, would... Red Dragon is, is really, really creepy. Yeah. I, Hannibal, I, prefer, I didn't really like. I prefer the the Brian Cox portrayal of Lecter in Manhunter, though, than the more famous portrayals. <laughs> well, you know, Anthony Hopkins went a really interesting direction yeah. with Hannibal. He, he really, that, that was just, I, I have no idea why he modeled his inflections on Hal, which if you read any interviews with him about um, Sounds of the Lambs, he'll tell you he modeled his inflection on the computer. Yeah. But I don't know why you would choose to do that. Well, that's, uh, that that's why I, as I say I prefer Brian Cox's one in Manhunter, because in many ways he portrays Hannibal as more uh, charming, <laughs> yeah. which is very, very worrying. <laughs> yeah, you don't really want your cannibals to be charming. Uh, you no. want them to be strange and weird, and you can tell there's something off about them. Helpful. Well, no, Have Brian Cox got, got the TV program, Hannibal. No, no. Um, the the one that they have, the gentleman that they have portraying um, Hannibal Lecter in that is a very nice looking man, very charming, very yeah. It's yeah, I could that would seriously mess up a lot of people, you know. I mean because here's this gentleman that's all put together and basically a lady killer in more ways than one. Um, <laughs> and to think that this guy is, is warping people's brains. He's a psychiatrist, by the way, <laughs> you know, um, it's in, it just, I'm glad they didn't do it in the movies. Um, because it's sort of freaky. Uh, and, you know, I mean, of course, the TV program can't be as creepy and scary as, as the film can. But, um, yeah, it's it's really strange to have Hannibal Lecter be somebody any woman walking down the street would look at and go, oh, well, he's not bad on the eyes. <laughs> yeah, the actor is uh, Mads Mikkel Mikkelsen, is that his name is. Yeah. He's, he's, he's uh, getting uh, more... Seen more and more blockbuster films as well. Another Popular European culture. actor. <laughs> Popular culture, you're losing me all. So, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't got around to watching the TV series either. But uh, yeah. Oh. Oh, instantly. Oh, pretty good. A good horror film, but I have found very few other people have actually seen it. <laughs> Is uh, called Mr. Frost. That's um, Jeff Goldblum. If you, if you like, if you Jeff like, Goldblum if you like, in scary roles really freaks me out. Oh, the, the, he's really creepy in this one. <laughs> I, I won't spoil it by telling you anything more about it other than Mr. Frost. That's the name of the film. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum's kind of a creepy guy. I mean, look at the prep work he did for The Fly, right? Not a great film. But the way he handled his transformation as an actor to the fly was very creepy. And he is very method, so I don't even want to know how he prepped for that. 
But it was a big step up from that comedy sci-fi film that was his first big role. <laughs> Earth Girls are easy. <laughs> <laughs> Funny film, but really bad. You know, I don't think anybody's big break is, is ever something they're proud of. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Um, but speaking of like good-looking guys who are fucking creepy... Um, I think American Psycho was actually really good for portraying that sort of banal, normal, nice-looking guy who's just insane under the surface. Although, when you get to the end, you have to wonder if everything that happened was in the character's mind. Um, but Christian Bale does a really good job in that. Yeah, I was going to say, Christian... are you are you talking about the character or the actor? Would you? <laughs> uh, Christian Bale does a very good job being crazy, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but he's an amazing actor. Um, to me, it killed me to sit and watch, like, my husband watched the Batman films, and I, you know, I was doing my research and stuff that I normally do while I was watching it, and I kept looking over at the new Batman and going, okay, this isn't going to be bad. This is no Christian Bale, but it's not bad. To me, the Batman that sticks with me most is not Michael Keaton. It's not George Clooney. It's always going to be Christian Bale's portrayal of the Dark Knight. That's just my opinion, I guess. So. I guess we'll move on to the next creepy tale. Okay. This is called The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad I, mad am I not and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment a series of mere household events in their consequences these events have terrified have tortured have destroyed me yet i will not attempt to expound them to me they have presented little but horror to many they will seem less terrible than baroques hereafter perhaps some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the dissality and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these, I spent most of my time and was never so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This particular character grew with my growth, and in my manhood, I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I hardly be at trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute, 
which goes directly to the heart of him who has frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find my in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. And speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with suspicion, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention this matter for no better reason than it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me whenever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, though the instrumentality of the fiend impertinence had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered to myself to use impertinent language to my, at length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change of my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still regained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkeys, or even the dog, when, by accident or through affection, they came my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more fiendish malevolence, gin nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat a pocket knife pen, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen this damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment of half-horror, half-remorse for the crime which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into the excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost I presented. It is true, a frightful appearance, but no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of the creature, which had once so loved me, but this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no count, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am perverseness, is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the 
indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason because he knows he should not have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such this spirit of perverseness i say came to my final overthrow it was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the sake of wrong only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning in cool blood, I slipped a noose around its neck and hung it from the limb of the tree, hung it with tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterness of remorse in my heart, hung it because I knew it had loved me and because I felt it had given me a reason of offense, hung it because I knew in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which the cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of the fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts in which not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. The exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had there in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to it having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many patrons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw as if graven in bas-relief on the white surface the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope around the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of the fire, this garden had been immediately filled by crowd by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had possibly been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of the other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which had then with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass accomplished the portraiture, portraiture as I saw it. Although the I thus readily accounted to my reason, not altogether my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not less the fall to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse, and went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. 
One night, as I sat half-stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing on the head of the immense hogshead of gin or rum, which constituted the cheap furniture of the apartment. I'd been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair <clears throat> upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon touching him, he immediately rose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. Then, this, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I knew not how or why. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or other violently ill use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with utterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I bought it home that, like Pluto, it had also been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I've already said, possessed a high degree that humanity of feeling, which had once been my distinguishing trait, and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. Hang on, guys, I gotta take a drink, sorry. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partially for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pernacity which would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Wherever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I rose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from doing so, partially, by at a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am also almost ashamed of, to own, yes, even in this felon cell, I am almost ashamed to own that terror and horror which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merriest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had caught my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I had spoken, which constituted the sole visible difference between this strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, 
and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctiveness of outline. It was the repression of an object I shudder to name, and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared it. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous and ghastly thing, of the gallows, O mourn and terrible engine of horror and crime, of agony and death. And now I was indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast, whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me a man, fashioned in the image of the high god, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day or night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter, I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnants of good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to now I blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most unusual and most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of an old building which our property compelled poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting, in my wrath, the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed to blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished, but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. The hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew I could not remove it from the house, either by day or night, without risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had been plastered throughout with rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble this part of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the, at this point, insert the corpse, and wall up the hole as before, so no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it has originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster. Could not every pos be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. 
the wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, here, at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast, which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at that moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed by the violence of my previous anger and forebode to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or imagine the deep, blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction to the house, I slept soundly and tranquilly. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled presence, premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the insecurity of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatsoever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee in my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltiness. Gentlemen, I said, as the last party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this is a very well-constructed house. In a rapid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an exceptionally well-constructed house. These walls... Are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly pulled together, and here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and the demons that exalt in their damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, their extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were tolling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with its red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast, whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb.
well done. Jack got him back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Well done to John as well. She's, she's read uh, Lovecraft, who tortures language, and <laughs> oh, who tortures punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Are, are yeah. words spelled different in England, or is it old-timey language? It's old-timey old language. language. Okay, because that, that's not how you spell that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and my grammar sucks, but I knew that was not how you spelled those words. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's old, old, old English. Like, correct English from England, at least in post up, I believe. Although... He he kind of wrote like somebody who had a drinking problem. He was not so great with the punctuation. Yeah. He he needed an editor. His sentences <laughs> like of, were extreme. Yeah. The stops and starts I added myself because I had to, because you know, it's good to breathe when you're reading. Yeah. <laughs> well, when when reading Poe, those bits with the dashes, you're supposed to Yeah transition to them quick as if it's the person transitioning quick etc but yeah it's very hard to do <laughs> yeah well, I think I did good uh, especially with Lovecraft I don't think I fucked up too much stuff yeah oh and incidentally a, a film which depicts Poe the Alcoholic the Raven <laughs> that was actually, I, yeah. I actually really liked that I thought it was a really good film yeah it was interesting mm-hmm and Cusack's an interesting choice for Poe, actually. I mean, I don't think, I don't think he looks a lot like the portraits I've seen of him, but he did a good job. And John Cusack's a pretty decent actor, I think. He's able to do a lot of really strange stuff. That was a really good movie. I liked it. He's he's also used to the wordy stuff. Yeah. Because he's worked with um, Nick Hornby a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, I only have two stories left. <laughs> um, and they're much more modern, thankfully. And the second one's a lot <laughs> longer. But I really like this one, Zombie by Richard Carty. Um, and the reason I like this is because he is a zombie, but it doesn't happen in the way you'd expect. Zombie by Richard Carty. When he was nervous, Dexter fingered the scar at the base of his skull. His friends, even his family, told him it was from the motorcycle accident. But Dexter knew that was a lie. He'd received the scar when he'd lost his soul in a rigged poker game with some hellspawn, disguised as Rudy Coulson's cousin Billy. He was now just a husk of a human, the living dead. It really sucked. Over the years since he'd lost his soul, Dexter would occasionally see it attached like a Siamese twin to some son of a bitch who'd no doubt purchased or stolen it from Hellspawn Billy. If he could get to the person, Dexter would offer to buy it back. Though he always tried to be reasonable, the people would usually play dumb and threaten to call the police if he didn't leave them alone. Dexter reconciled himself to life as a zombie. The whole brain-eating thing didn't work for him. Neither did hangout in cemeteries and haunting the woods. Brains made him puke, and cemeteries fell into two categories. Either they were dead boring, no pun intended, or full of horny goth kids who threw rocks at him when he'd go into the slow, lurching zombie walk he'd seen in movies and practiced at home in front of the mirror. Haunting the woods was even worse. He was 
almost shot by some drunken deer hunters. Dexter might be the living dead, but he wasn't stupid. The one good thing he'd noticed, that becoming zombified had improved his night vision. Probably it had something to do with the brain hunting he was supposed to be engaged in, he figured. Dexter got a job at the, as the head of the night shift security guard at the mall. The job was pretty easy. At night, the entire mall was closed, except for the little combination bar and video game arcade on the south side of the complex. Dexter made his hourly rounds, practicing his living dead walk in the big plate glass windows in front of J.C. Penney's, before ending up back at the arcade. One night, Dexter saw a guy in a red Pendleton shirt going into the arcade, wearing his soul. He followed the guy inside. Almost everyone in the place was wearing a stolen soul. The hijacked spirits held on to their new bodies like blind children, or perched on shoulders like parrots in some cartoon drawing of a pirate. Following Mr. Red Pendleton into the back, Dexter saw his soul slip off the man's back and into a glass case. The case was an old arcade game, one of those claw machines where you try to grab a camera or a gold watch, but usually end up with a pair of foam dice. This game, however, was full of souls. He saw his at the back of the case, staring at him mournfully. Dexter fished around in his pocket, withdrew 50 cents, and dropped it into the machine. He got nothing on the first try. On the second, on the third, he hooked a plastic tiara from the pile of toys at the bottom of the machine. He ran out of quarters soon after and had to get more change from the bartender. When he'd run through the rest of his cash, Dexter got out his ATM card. After an hour, he'd blown through most of his life savings, which at just over $300 would be kind of pathetic under normal circumstances. Considering that Dexter was one step removed from worm bait, it wasn't that bad. When he was down to his last $3, Dexter snagged his soul. He smiled as it crawled from the tray on the side of the claw machine and into his empty interior. But something was wrong. It didn't fit or something. It felt awkward, like a t-shirt that had shrunk in the wash. Dexter used the last of his cash to grab the soul of Wayne Shelby McCarthy, the captain of his high school swim team and class treasurer in their senior year. Filled with a sense of well-being and purpose from his new soul, Dexter quit his guard job the next day and re-enrolled in community college. Dexter's abandoned soul wandered the mall for weeks, until it applied for his old security guard's job. The soul never became popular either with the local merchants or his workmates, who thought of him as distant and spooky. But he never took a sick day, and there were almost no break-ins when he was on the job. Over the years, Dexter's soul discovered that the other night staff at the arcade the ex-cheerleaders on late shift at the Dairy Queen across the highway and the Happy Donuts crew down the road were also abandoned souls. They began meeting on a regular basis to play mini-golf and ride the go-karts at the Playland Fun Park out by the airport. Dexter's soul took up with the soul of Roxbury Bordeaux, one of the DQ cheerleaders. They moved in together and Dexter's soul took over running the arcade when Sonny Simmons, the soul who'd been in charge of the place for 20-odd years, was big on a Houston Rockets game and ended up back at the claw machine. Dexter's soul runs the arcade to this day. He keeps waiting for the night when Dexter walks back in, hanging out behind the bar and mixing himself a cherry Coke, copping a bag of barbecued flavored Doritos from the snack stand behind the counter. He looks around his little kingdom of lost souls and hopes that things have worked out well for Dexter as they have for him. I just like that one. It's not particularly creepy. It's just kind of strange. Simple. <laughs> yeah. It was a nice break after Poe and Lovecraft. <laughs> I'll tell you that. So I love zombie movies, by the way. 
I just like that this guy loses a soul in a fucking poker game. That kind of cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it just soulless zombies that enjoy mini golf? This is the... And Dairy Queen work, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny that, you know, all these lost souls are stuck at the mall. Well, it makes sense. Nobody wants to go to the mall. Right? It, because it is a soul-sucking place. Exactly. It's a metaphor. It's hilarious. Sort of. I guess. But you got it. That's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah, it compares with uh, Shaun of the Dead. The, the end kind of the film. Of. Zombies get employed as um, trolley collectors at supermarkets. <laughs> I, I love, I love in Shaun of the Dead how they go out to play video games, and his zombie friend tries to bite him. He's like, "No." Yeah. Like they're going to be able to. I don't know. I, I love Shaun of the Dead. Dead but the ending was just way too weird. When I was, I went to Minnesota when mm -hmm. my friend BB Dragon got married. I went out for his wedding. And I don't know what the fuck he was thinking. I, I guess he was thinking I was a girl, so therefore I would <laughs> like it. But, you know, you can't go to the Twin Cities in Minnesota without going to this place. And no, it wasn't Ikea. I wish I had gone to Ikea. <laughs> he, he took me to retail hell. <laughs> I did not know such a place existed. And yes, ladies, I am so sheltered that I did not know what the mall of america was that this place even existed but they named it incorrectly they should have just put retail hell on the sign so you didn't enjoy your sojourn through mall of america it's the most fucked up thing i've ever seen in my entire life you should not need a golf cart to navigate a fucking shopping center I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and I mean, I guess everybody noticed like mall culture, the stores, if, if you go into any of them, if you live in a reasonable sized town, they, they seem to be dying. You know, um, unless you have a really great mall that puts on lots of live events and has lots of fun stuff for kids. Most of them seem to be dying. Um, there's, There's an easy solution. Every mall just needs a uh, Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> I love Mall Rats. Brilliant film. Yeah, that is funny. It's oh, it's, yeah. a surreal it's a surreal film. film. You've, you've seen these these things. We went uh, last year before Christmas. Um, Bernie needed sneakers or something. I don't know what the fuck it was, but we ended up in the mall in Olean, New York. And I went on this rant on my show afterwards about it because it just seemed like the most stupid thing in the entire world. They had these giant rocking horses and and like cow things that are motorized that they rent out in the in one of the Kosiaks in the mall. And, <laughs> and, and I am just like thinking, 
what the fuck were the managers of this place thinking when they when they rented these people space and told them that yeah sure you can rent out giant ride-on toys for people to cruise around the mall that that we've also leased out space to every crystal vendor and and glass vendor and and whatever for up and down what the hell are these people thinking why would <laughs> i'm this this like and and now you can't really say you broke it, you bought it anymore, right, you know, because right. they they just say, well, no, you take that risk as a as a as a business owner. Mm -hmm. But I, I, there were grown ass adults having drag races in the fucking mall <laughs> on these battery operated toys, and I'm sitting here thinking, what idiot thought this was a good idea? This is this is just one more one more reason to not set foot in this suck hole <laughs> souls i think that's we should open a store and call it the suck hole of souls i'm sorry i think it would be hilarious um but you're right i mean malls are not what they were when i was growing up they had everything in them and all the best bookstores the best music stores i mean now Amazon has everything. You can get stuff on Kindle. People don't really leave their houses anymore because they don't have to. And to be quite honest, if you're a vapor or you were a smoker at that time, you were not made to feel very welcome in malls. And I assume that's even more true now with, you know, the cloud chasing people because I see bands happening all the time, you know? Um, when you make customers who will spend money feel less than welcome, they just refuse to go and businesses crumble. It's just kind of sad. Um, Luckily I'm in the UK where yeah, the whole shopping mall thing has happened, but not the giant malls you've got in the States. The ones over here tend to be a lot smaller. Oh, the mall of America is miles and miles and miles. I mean, I'm like, whoa, it's, yeah. it's, it's awful. It is just fucking awful. Yeah, the only reason I ever used to go to the mall, even as a teenager, I went to the record store. Well, it wasn't. It was when I was a teenager. It was the record store. The CDs hadn't really come out yet. It was records and cassettes. That tells you how old I am. And the bookstore. Those were the only reason I ever went to the mall. Everything in between was just kind of annoying, except for the coffee shop. That was kind of nice for a break, but everything else was just there taking up space. I didn't really use it. I, you know, got clothes from secondhand stores, or I got hand-me-downs, or I would piece stuff together and make stuff. I didn't really buy a lot of clothes. I was never that kind of girl. So the mall was kind of wasted on me. You know, I don't know. Hey, when but, I was growing up, we didn't, there weren't really any, well, I call them shopping centers in the UK. They, right. they were kind of new when I was growing up, so there weren't that many of them. And I grew mm -hmm. up in the countryside, so I'd maybe only see the inside of one once or twice a year. So, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I never really, it's never really a big thing here. So, especially, yeah. as I say, especially not in the north of Scotland. Where the only yeah. ones were in Inverness or Aberdeen, both of which were a long way from where you lived. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, like a long trip. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, the town I grew up in is 35 miles from Inverness, okay. which is where you had the nearest shopping centre. So, yeah. And, yeah, once I was an adult and was working, yeah, I could travel through myself and go shopping when I needed to. Right. But, to be honest, most of the stuff I was buying wasn't in the shopping centre. It was in yeah. normal shops. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and me too, but like I said, you know, I, I was never afraid to get clothes from the thrift store. I liked them, you know. Um, they had, and they still do, they have the best looking velvet stuff. Every piece of velvet I own it was someone else's. <laughs> and like good, heavy, nice, thick velvet, which I really like. Um, in the wintertime down here, I don't wear pants. I wear long, thick, heavy velvet skirts because it's the only time I can. Yeah. And that's that's great for me. I love that. Okay. Um, oh, before you before you go on to your next story, okay. tell you, um, you know, and I have talked about how this town that we moved to is so much bigger than where we moved from, but yet mm -hmm. it's it's country. We had, they came to hook up my propane. Well, they, they didn't really, and that's a whole nother, what the fuck? <laughs> anyway, so they came to set our propane tank. Let's put it that way. Okay. And let me tell you what, a 500 gallon propane tank is fucking huge, by the way. Okay. I'm, I don't know how warm and fuzzy I am about this gigundous tank of, of, uh, volatile gas in my yard, but anyway, so they had to do pressure tests on, on all the appliances, meaning because, you know, my stove, my dryer, my furnace, anything that was going to be run on the propane. Well, my brand new stove, Jan, failed. You know, you know that stove that I bought brand new last fall and put in in my house in Shingle House? Uh -huh. it, it failed the pressure test. Yeah, not fucking happy. So, needless to say, my dad was here over the weekend, and he and Paul went through, and they're trying to find out where this leak was. Evidently, it has been leaking since I got it, because up underneath the top, which no longer lifts up, these new ones don't lift up, it's a solid top stove. Right. Well, so anyway, up underneath of there, they found a, a coupler that was split. Okay. And the more you tighten this coupler, the worse the leak got. So okay. anyway, so we needed this new coupler. On to how awesome it is living in the country. The the guy from the propane company tells us who in town to, to go see that could come and fix it. Okay. okay. So Paul took the part off. We go down there today. And this gentleman took apart two stoves that he had there in his shop to see okay. if he had the part on one of them to give to us. And he oh, didn't. Wow. Yeah. 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 Took apart two stoves to see if he could find it. Nope. Didn't have it. He says, but they've got it down at King's. Follow me on down there and, and I'll help you get what you need. Wow. He, and we're like, well, you can just ride down there with us. He's like, oh, well, that's good because I have a key. I've got to get made anyway. Rides <laughs> down to another store with us to help Paul get the exact parts that he needs to fix my stove. And then tried to refuse the $20 that Paul was trying to give him. He's like, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> this is what people in the country are like. This is why we moved here. This is why we love it here. I, 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 
there aren't many places in the world that you can go anymore and people are that way but there are that way here and this is why we love it here yeah no i, I definitely know what you mean small small towns are very different from big cities and well, I, I think he was, it's he was pointing out different stores and telling us who owned that now and what it used to be and and well when that old fella that that used to own it passed away they found this or that or the other thing up in the attic of it i mean it's it's it is just it's freaking awesome yeah i mean yeah uh, that's the kind of place i grew up in I said to John, I think it was last week, yeah, there's there's a comedy show in the UK kind of related to that sort of thing. The League of Gentlemen. It's a very, yeah. very strange comedy show. But, yeah, it's, you know, about small town life. <laughs> yeah, and it is very different than big city living. I know I've, I've lived in other places, <clears throat> um, and it's very different. Um, living in a college town was nuts because when I went to college, I lived in a college town. It had a university and it had probably the most interesting thing was there were bars on both sides of the street. And because people would go from bar to bar to bar, all the glassware all the bar owners <laughs> matched all their glassware so that when you went roaming from one bar to another bar, um, it wasn't a big deal. And that was like the strangest thing I can remember. But, but isn't, isn't a normal street got like a bar every third building? Or is that just uh, Scotland? That, that might just be Scotland, but it was like that in the town I went to college. Because yeah, very my most, but my first big trip away from the Highlands was then uh, when after my parents divorced, my mother moved down to London with her second husband, mm -hmm. and okay. was running a bar down there, and it was in Acton in London, okay. and Acton in London is completely different. It's, well, it's a it's an area, it originally <laughs> Acton Village, you know, but London okay. swallowed them all up. Acton's full of Scots and Irish. Consequently, okay. it was like Scotland. Every third building was a bar. It was quite <laughs> surreal. And pub chains, even. Um, in On one street, it was about a two-mile-long street, mm -hmm. there were three outlets with a pub named the same, the Cross Keys. <laughs> there were three Cross Keys on the one street, all owned by the same brewery. <laughs> Must have been really good when you're trying to get taxis. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Which one? Yeah. Which number is it? Yeah. <laughs> no, but, um, but yeah, yeah. that was the UK. We're alcoholics. <laughs> well, you're trapped on a little island, and your politicians are, well, they're as good as well. They're about the same caliber caliber as ours it's just that your press pays a little more attention to them um, what they do um, so it's no wonder you drink yeah uh, just throwing that out there um, okay last story is called Nightcrawlers and it's pretty long 
uh, Nightcrawlers by Robert McBannon. Hard rain coming down, Cheryl said, and I nodded in agreement. Through the dinner plate's glass, diner plate glass windows, a dense curtain of rain flapped across the gulf gas pumps and continued across the parking lot. It hit big bobs with a force that made the glass rattle like uneasy bones. The red neon sign said, Big Bob's Diesel Fuel Eats, all with exclamation points at the end, sat on top of a high steel pole above the diner so the truckers on the interstate could see it. Out in the night, the red-tinted rain thrashed in torrents across <laughs> my old pickup and Cheryl's baby blue Volkswagen. Well, I said, I suppose that storm will either wash some folks off the interstate or we can just about hang it up. The curtain of rain parted for an instant, and I could see the treetops whipping back and forth in the woods on the other side of Highway 47. Wind whined around the front door like an animal trying to claw its way in. I glanced at the electric clock on the wall behind the counter. Twenty minutes before nine. We usually closed up at ten, but tonight, with tornado warnings and the weather forecast, I was tempted to turn the lock a little early. Tell you what, I said, if we're empty at nine, we skedaddle, okay? No argument there, she said. She watched the storm for a moment longer, then continued putting newly washed coffee cups, saucers, and plates away on the stainless steel shelves. Lightning flared from west to east like the strike of burning bullwhip. <clears throat> the diner's lights flickered, then came back to normal. A shudder of thunder seemed to come right up through my shoes. Late March is the beginning of tornado season in South Alabama, and we've had some whoppers spin past here in the last few years. I knew that Alma was at home, and she understood to get into the root cellar right quick if she spotted a twister, like the one we saw in 82 dancing through the woods about two miles from our farm. You got any lovin's planned this weekend, hippie? I asked Cheryl, mostly to get my mind off the storm and river chew. She was in her late 30s, but I swear when she grinned, she could have passed for a kid. Wouldn't you like to know, Redneck, she answered. She replied that same way to all my digs at her. Cheryl Love Song, and I know that couldn't have been her real name, was a mighty able waitress, and she had hands that were no strangers to hard work. But I didn't care that she wore her long silvery blonde hair in Indian braids with hippie headbands or came to work in the tie-dyed overalls. She was the best waitress who ever worked for me, and she got along with everybody just fine, even us rednecks. That's what I am, and proud of it. I drink Rebel Yell Whiskey straight, and my favorite songs are about good women gone bad and trains on long tracks to nowhere. I keep my wife happy. I've raised two boys to pray to God and salute the flag. And if anybody don't like it, he can go a few rounds with Big Bob Clayton. Cheryl would come right out and tell you she used to live in San Francisco in the late 60s and that she went to Lovins and Peace Marches and all that stuff. When I reminded her it was 1984 and Ronnie Reagan was president, She'd look at me like I was a walking cow flop. I always figured she'd start thinking straight when all that hippie dust blew off her head. Alma said my tail was going to get burnt if I ever took a shine to Cheryl, but I'm a 55-year-old redneck who stopped sowing his wild seed when he met the woman he married more than 30 years ago. Lightning crisscrossed the turbulent sky, followed by a boom of thunder. Cheryl said, wow, look at that light show. Light show my ass, I muttered. The diner was as solid as the good book, so I wasn't worried about the storm. But on a wild night like this, stuck out in the countryside, like Big Bob's was, you had a feeling of being a long way off from civilization, though Mobile was only 27 miles south. On a wild night like this, you had a feeling that anything could happen as quick as a streak of lightning out of the darkness. 
I picked up a copy of the mobile press register that the last customer, a trucker on his way to Texas, had left on the counter a half hour before, and I started plowing through the news, most of it bad. Those Arab countries were still squabbling like the Hatfields and McCoys in white robes. Two men had robbed a quick mart in mobile and had been killed in the police by the police in a shootout. Cops were investigating a massacre in a motel near Dayton Beach. An infant had been stolen from a maternity ward in Birmingham. The only good things on the front page were stories that said the economy was up and Reagan swore we'd show the commies who was boss in El Salvador and Lebanon. The diner shook under a blast of thunder, and I looked up from the paper as a pair of headlights emerged from the rain into my parking lot. The headlights were attached to an Alabama state trooper car. Half alive, hold the onion, extra brown the buns. Cheryl was already writing on her pad in expectation of the order. I pushed the paper aside and went to the fridge for the hamburger meat. When the door opened, a windblown spray of rain swept in and stung like buckshot. Howdy, folks. Dennis Wells peeled off his gray rain slicker and hung it on the rack next to the door. Over his smoky the Bear Trooper hat was a protective plastic covering, beaded with raindrops. He took off his hat, exposing thinning blonde hair on his pale scalp as he approached the counter and sat in his usual stool right next to the cash register. A cup of black coffee and a rare. Cheryl was already sliding the coffee in front of him and the burger sizzled on the griddle. Y'all are on the ball tonight, Dennis said. He said the same thing when he came in, which was almost every night. Funny, the kind of habits you fall into without realizing it. Kind of wild out there, ain't it? I asked as I flipped the burger over. Lordy, yes. Wind just about flipped my car over three, four miles down the interstate. Thought I was going to be eating a little pavement tonight. Dennis was a husky young man in his early 30s with thick blonde brows over deep-set light brown eyes. He had a wife and three kids, and he was fast to flash a wallet full of their pictures. Don't reckon I'll be chasing any speeders tonight, but there'll probably be a load of accidents. Cheryl, you sure look pretty this evening. Still the same old me. Cheryl never wore a speck of makeup, though one day she'd come to work with glitter on her cheeks. She had a place a few miles away, and I guess that farming that when I guess she was farming that funny weed up there. Any trucks moving? Seen a few, but not many. Truckers ain't fools. Better get worse before it gets better, the radio says. He sipped his coffee and grimaced. Lordy, that's strong enough to jump out of the cup and dance a jig, darling. I fixed the burger the way Dennis liked it, put it on a platter with some fries, and served it. Bobby, how's the wife treating you, he asked. No complaints? Good to hear. I'll tell you, a fine woman is worth her weight in gold. Hey, Cheryl, how'd you like a handsome young man for a husband? Cheryl smiled, knowing what was coming. The man I'm looking for hasn't been made yet. Yeah, but you ain't met Cecil yet, either. He asks me about you every time I see him, and I keep telling him I'm doing everything I can to get you two together. Cecil was Dennis's brother-in-law and owned a Chevy dealership in Bay Minette. Dennis had been ribbing Cheryl about going on a date with Cecil for the past four months. You'd like him, Dennis promised. He's got a lot of my qualities. Well, that's different. In that case, I'm certain I don't want to meet him. Dennis winced. Oh, you're a cruel woman. That's what smoking banana peels does to you. Turns you mean. Anybody reading this rag? He reached over for the newspaper. Waiting here just for you, I said. Thunder rumbled closer to the diner. The lights flickered briefly once, then again before they returned to normal. Cheryl busied herself by fixing a fresh pot of coffee, and I watched the rain whipping against the windows. When the lightning flashed, I could see the trees swaying so hard they looked about to snap. Dennis Red made his hamburger. Boy, he said after a few minutes, the world's in some shape, huh? Those Arab pig stickers are itching for war. Mobile Metro boys had a little gunplay last night. Good for them. He paused and frowned, then tapped the paper with one thick finger. This I can't figure. 
what's that? Thing in Florida a couple nights ago. Six people killed at Pine Haven Motor Inn near Daytona Beach. Motel was set off in the woods. Only a couple of cinder block houses in the area, and nobody heard any gunshots. It says here one old man saw what he thought was a bright white star falling over the motel, and that was it. Funny, huh? A UFO, Cheryl offered. Maybe he saw a UFO. Yeah, and I'm a little green man from Mars, Dennis scoffed. I'm serious. This is weird. The motel was so blown full of holes, it looked like a war had been going on. Everybody was dead. Even a dog and a canary that belonged to the manager. The cars out in front of the rooms were blasted to pieces. The sound of one of them exploding was what woke up the people in those houses. I reckon. He skimmed the story again. Two bodies were out in the parking lot. One was holed up in a bathroom. One had crawled under her bed. And two had dragged every piece of furniture in the room over to block the door. Didn't seem to help many, though. I grunted. Guess not. No motive. No witnesses. You better believe those Florida cops are shaking the bushes for some kind of dangerous maniac. Or maybe more than one, it says here. He shoved the paper away and patted the service revolver at his hip. If I ever get a hold of him or them, he'd find out not to mess with a Bama trooper. He glanced quickly over at Cheryl and smiled mischievously. Probably some crazy hippie who'd been smoking his tennis shoes. Don't knock it, she said sweetly, until you've tried it. She looked past him out the window into the storm. The car's pulling in, Bobby. Headlights glared briefly off the windows. It was a station wagon with wood green panels on the sides. It veered around the gas pumps and parked next to Dennis's trooper car. On the front bumper was a personalized license plate that said Ray and Lindy. The headlights died, and all doors opened at once. Out of the wagon came a whole family, a man, a woman, a little girl, and a boy about eight or nine. Dennis got opened up with the diner door as they hurried inside from the rain. All of them had gotten pretty well soaked between the station wagon and the diner, and they wore the dazed expressions of people who'd been on the road a long time. The man wore glasses and had curly gray hair. The one was slim and dark-haired and pretty. The kids were sleepy-eyed. All of them were well-dressed. The man in the yellow sweater with one of the alligators on the chest. They had vacation tans, and I figured they were tourists heading north from the beach after spring break. Come on in and take a seat, I said. Thank you, the man said. They squeezed into one of the booths near the windows. We saw your sign from the interstate. Bad night to be on the highway, Dennis told him. Tornado warnings are out all over the place. We heard it on the radio, the woman, Lindy, if the license plate was right, said. We're on our way to Birmingham, and we thought we could drive right through the storm. We should have stopped at that Holiday Way Inn we passed about 15 miles ago. That would have been smart, Dennis agreed. No sense in pushing your luck. He returned to his stool. The new arrivals ordered hamburgers, fries, and Cokes. Cheryl and I went back to work. Lightning made the diner's lights flicker again, and the sound of thunder caused the kids to jump. When the food was ready, and Cheryl served them, Dennis said, Tell you what, you folks finish your dinners, and I'll escort you to the Holiday Inn. Then you can head out in the morning. How about that? Fine, Ray said gratefully. I don't think we could have gotten much further anyway. He turned his attention to his food. Well... Cheryl said quietly, standing behind me. I don't guess we get to go home early, do we? I guess not. Sorry. She shrugged. Goes with the job, right? Anyway, I can think of worse places to be stuck. I figured that Alma might be worried about me, so I went over to the payphone to call her. I dropped in a quarter, and the dial tone sounded like a cat being stepped on. I hung up and tried again. The cat scream continued. Damn, I muttered. Lions must be screwed up. Ought to get yourself a place closer to town, Bobby, Dennis said. Never could figure out why you wanted a joint in the sticks. At least you get better phone service and good lights if you were near to Mo. He was interrupted by the sound of wet and shrieking brakes, and he swiveled around on his stool. I looked up as a car hurtled into the parking lot, the tires swerving, throwing up plumes of water. For a few seconds, I thought it was going to keep coming right through the window into the diner, but then the brakes caught and the car almost grazed the side of my pickup as it jerked to a stop. 
In the neon red glow, I could tell it was a beat-up old Ford Fairlane, either gray or dingy beige. Steam was rising off the crumpled hood. The headlights stayed on for perhaps a minute before they winked off. The figure got out of the car and walked slowly with a limp towards the diner. We watched the figure approach. Dennis's body coiled like a spring ready to be triggered. You got us a live one, Bobby boy, he said. The door opened in and a stinging gust of wind and rain walked a man who looked like walking death. He stepped into my diner. He was so wet, he may as well have been driving with his windows down. He was a skinny guy. Maybe weighed all of 120 pounds, even soaking wet. His unruly dark hair was plastered to his head, and he had gone a week or more without a shave. In his gaunt, pallid face were his eyes startlingly blue. His gaze flickered around the diner, lingered for a few seconds on Dennis. Then he limped to the far end of the counter and took a seat. He wiped the rain out of his eyes as Cheryl took a menu to him. Dennis stared at the man. When he spoke, his voice bristled with authority. Hey, fella. The man looked up from his menu. Hey, I'm talking to you. The man pushed the menu away and pulled a damp packet of cools out of the breast pocket of his patched army fatigue jacket. I can hear you, he said. His voice was deep and husky and didn't go with less than his robust physical appearance. Driving kind of fast in this weather, don't you think? The man flicked a cigarette lighter a few times before he got it to flame, then let one of his smokes inhale deeply. Yeah, he replied. I was. Sorry, I saw the sign and I was in a hurry to get here. Miss, I'd just like a cup of coffee, please. Hot and real strong, okay? Cheryl nodded and turned away from him, almost bumping into me as I strolled down behind the counter to check him out. That kind of hurry will get you killed, Dennis cautioned. Right, sorry. He shivered and pushed the tangled hair back from his forehead with one hand. Up close, I could see the deep cracks around his mouth and the corners of his eyes, and I figured him to be in his late 30s or early 40s. His wrists were as thin as a woman's, and he looked like he hadn't eaten a good meal for more than a month. He stared at his hands through bloodshot eyes. Probably on drugs, I thought. The fellow gave me the creeps. Then he looked at me with those eyes, so pale blue they're almost white, and I felt like I'd been nailed to the floor. Something wrong, he asked. Not rudely, just curiously. Nope. I shook my head. Cheryl gave him his coffee, then went over to give Ray and Lindsay their check. The man didn't use either cream or sugar. The coffee was steaming, but he drank half of it down like mother's milk. That's good, he said. Keep me awake, won't it? More than likely. Over the breast pocket of his jacket was the faint outline of the name that had been sewn there once. I think it was Price, but I could have been wrong. That's what I want, to stay awake as long as I can. He finished the coffee. Can I have another cup, please? I poured it for him. He drank that one down just as fast and rubbed his eyes wearily. Been on the road a long time, huh? Price nodded. Day and night. I don't know which is more tired, my mind or my butt. He lifted his gaze to me again. If you got anything else to drink, how about beer? Nope, sorry, couldn't get a liquor license. He sighed. Just as well, might make me sleepy. But I sure could go for a beer right now. One sip to clean my mouth out. He picked up his coffee cup and I smiled and started to turn away. But he wasn't holding a cup. He was holding a Budweiser can and for an instant I could smell the tang of a newly popped beer. The mirage was there only for maybe two seconds. I blinked, and Price was holding a cup again. Just as well, he said, and he put it down. I glanced over at Cheryl, then at Dennis. Neither one was paying attention. Damn, I thought. I'm too young to be losing either my eyesight or my senses. Uh, I said, or some other stupid noise. One more cup, Price said. Then I better hit the road again. My hand was shaking as I picked it up, but if Price noticed, he didn't say anything. Want anything to eat, Cheryl asked him. How about a bowl of beef stew? He shook his head. No thanks. The sooner I get back on the road, the better it'll be. Suddenly, Dennis swiveled towards him, giving him a cold stare only cops and drill sergeants can muster. Back on the road? He started. Fella, have you ever been in a tornado before? 
I'm going to escort these nice people to the Holiday Inn about 15 miles back. If you're smart, that's where you'll spend the night, too. No use in trying to... No! Christ's voice was rock steady. I'll be spending the night behind the wheel. Dennis's eyes narrowed. How come you're in such a hurry? Not running from anybody, are you? Night crawlers, Cheryl said. Price turned toward her like he'd been slapped in the face, and I saw it might have been a spark of fear in his eyes. Cheryl motioned toward the lighter Price had laid on the counter beside the pack of coals. It was a beat-up silver zippo, and inscribed across it was night crawlers, with the symbol of two crossed rifles beneath it. Sorry, she said. I just noticed that, and I wondered what it was. Price put the lighter away. I was in Nam, he told her. Everybody in my unit got one. Hey, there was suddenly a new respect in Dennis's voice. You a vet? Price paused so long I didn't think he was going to answer. In the quiet, I heard the little girl tell her mother that the fries were yucky. Price said, yes. How about that? Hey, I wanted to go myself, but I got a high number of things that were winding down about that time anyway. Did you see any action? A faint, bitter smile passed over Price's mouth. Too much. What infantry? Marines? Rangers? Price picked up his third cup of coffee, swallowed some, and put it down. He closed his eyes for a few seconds, and when he opened, they were vacant and fixed on nothing. Nightcrawlers, he said quietly, special unit, deployed to recon Charlie positions in questionable villages. He said it like he was reciting from a manual. We did a lot of crawling through rice paddies and jungles in the dark. Bet you laid a few of them Viet Cong out, didn't you? Dennis got up and came over to sit a few places away from the man. Man, I was behind you guys all the way. I wanted you to stay in there and fight it out. Price was silent. Thunder echoed over the diner. The lights weakened for a few seconds. When they came back on, they seemed to have lost some of their wattage. The place was dimmer than before. Price's head slowly turned toward Dennis with the inexpressible motion of the machine. I was thankful I didn't have to take the full force of Price's dead blue eyes, and I saw Dennis wince. I should have stayed. He said, I should be there right now, buried in the mud of a rice paddy with the eight other men in my patrol. Oh, Dennis blinked. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I came home, Price continued calmly, by stepping on the bodies of my friends. Do you want to know what that's like, Mr. Trooper? The war's over, I told him. No need to bring it back. Price smiled grimly, but his gaze remained fixed on Dennis. Some say it's over. I say it came back with the men who were there, like me, especially like me, Price paused. The wind howled around the door and the lightning illuminated for an instant the thrashing woods along the highway. The mud was up to our knees, Mr. Trooper. We're moving across a rice paddy in the dark, being real careful not to step on the bamboo stakes we figured were planted there. Then the first shot started. Pop, 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 like firecrackers going off. One of the night crawlers flared off a flare, and we saw the Kong bringing us. We walked right into hell, Mr. Trooper. Somebody shouted, Charlie's in the light, and we started firing, trying to punch a hole through them. But they were everywhere. As soon as one went down, three more took their place. Grenades were going off and more flares and people were screaming and they got hit. I took a bullet in the thigh and another in the hand. I lost my rifle and somebody fell on top of me with half his head missing. Oh, listen, I said, you don't have to. I want to, friend. He glanced quickly at me, then back to Dennis. I think I cringed when his gaze pierced me. I want to tell it all. They were fighting and screaming and dying all around me and I felt the bullets tug at my clothes as they passed through. I know I was screaming too, but what was coming out of my mouth sounded bestial. I ran. The only way I could save my own life was to step on their bodies and drive them down into the mud. I heard some of them choke and blubber as I put my foot on their faces. I knew all those guys like brothers, but at that moment, there were only pieces of meat. I ran. A gunship chopper came over the paddy and laid down some fire, and that's how I got out. Alone. He bent his face closer to the other man's, and you better believe I'm in that rice paddy in Nam every time I close my eyes. 
You better believe the men I left back there don't rest easy. So keep your opinions about Nam and being behind you guys to yourself, Mr. Trooper. I don't want to hear that bullshit. Got it? Dennis sat very still. He wasn't used to being talked to like that, not even from a Nam vet. And I saw the shadow of anger pass over his face. Price's hands were trembling as he bought a little bottle out of his jeans pocket. He shook two blue and orange capsules out onto the counter and took them both with a swallow of coffee and then recapped the bottle and put it away. The flush of his face looked almost ashen in the dim light. I know you boys had a rough time, Dennis said, but that's no call to disrespect the law. The law, Price repeated. Yeah, right. Bullshit. There are women and children present. I reminded him, what's your language? Price rose from his seat. He looked like a skeleton with a little extra skin on his bones. Mister, I haven't slept for more than 36 hours. My nerves are shot. I don't mean to cause trouble, but when some fool says he understands, I feel like kicking his teeth down his throat because no one who wasn't there can pretend they understand. He glanced at Ray, Lindsay, and the kids. Sorry, folks, don't mean to disturb you. Friend, how much do I owe you? He started digging for his wallet. Dennis slid slowly from his seat and stood with his hands on his hips. Hold it. He used his trooper's voice again. If you think I'm letting you walk out of here high on pills and needing sleep, you're crazy. I don't want to be scraping you off the highway. Price paid him no attention. He took a couple dollars from his wallet and put them on the counter. I didn't touch them. Those pills will keep me away, Price said. Once I get on the road, I'll be fine. Fella, I wouldn't let you go if it was high noon and not a cloud in the sky. I sure as hell don't want to clean up after the accident you're going to leave. Now why don't you come along to the Holiday Inn and... Price laughed grimly. Mr. Trooper, the last place you want me staying is at a motel. He cocked his head to the side. I was at a motel in Florida a couple of nights ago, and I think I left my room a little untidy. Step aside and let me pass. A motel in Florida. Dennis nervously licked his lower lip. What the hell are you talking about? Nightmares in reality, Mr. Trooper. The point where they cross. A couple nights ago, they crossed at a motel. I wasn't going to let my sleep. I was just going to rest for a little while. But I didn't know they'd come so fast. A mocking smile played at the edges of his mouth, but his eyes were tortured. You don't want me staying at that holiday inn, Mr. Trooper. You really don't. Now step aside. I saw Dennis's hand settle on the butt of his revolver. His fingers unsnapped the fold of leather that secured the gun in his holster. I stared at him numbly. My God, I thought, what's going on? My heart started pounding, and I was sure everybody could hear it. Ray and Lindsay were watching, and Cheryl was backing away behind the counter. Price and Dennis faced each other for a moment as the rain whipped against the windows and thunder boomed like shellfire. Then Price sighed as if resigning himself to something. He said, I think I want a T-bone steak, extra rare. How about that? He looked at me. A steak? My voice was shaking. We don't have any T-bone. Price's gaze shifted the counter right in front of me. I heard a seat uh, sizzle. The aroma of cooking meat drifted up to me. Oh, wow, Cheryl whispered. A large T-bone steak lay on the counter, top pink and oozing blood. You could have fanned a menu in my face and I would have keeled over. Wisp of smoke were rising from the steak. The steak began to fade until it was only an outline on the counter. The lines of oozing blood vanished. After the mirage was gone, I could still smell the meat, and that's how I knew I wasn't crazy. Dennis's mouth hung open. Ray had stood up from the booth, and his wife's face was the color of spoiled milk. The whole world seemed to be balanced on a point of silence, until the wail of the wind jarred me back to my senses. I'm getting good at it, Price said softly. I'm getting real good. It didn't start happening to me about a year ago. I found four other non-vets who can do the same thing. What's in your head comes true, as simple as that. Of course, the images only last as long as a few seconds. As long as I'm awake, I mean. I found out those other men were drenched by a chemical spray we called Howdy Duty because it made you stiffen up and jerk like you were hanging on strings. I got hit with it near Quezon. 
That shit almost suffocated me. It felt like black tar and it burned the land down the paved parking lot. He stared at Dennis. You don't want me around here, Mr. Trooper. Not with the body count I've still got in my head. You're at that motel near Daytona Beach. Price closed his eyes. A vein had begun beating in his right temple. Royal blue against the pallor of his flesh. Oh, Jesus, he whispered. I fell asleep and I couldn't wake myself up. I was having the nightmare. The same one. I was locked in it. And I was trying to scream myself awake. He shuddered and two tears ran slowly down his cheeks. Oh, he said, and flinching as if remembering something horrible. They, they were coming through the door when I woke up. Tearing the door right off its hinges, I woke up just as one of them was pointing his rifle at me. And I saw his face. I saw his muddy, misshapen face. His eyes suddenly jerked open. I didn't know they'd come so fast. Who, I asked him, who came so fast? The night crawlers, Price said, his face void of expression mask-like. Dear God, maybe if I'd stayed asleep a second more. But I ran again, and I left those people dead in that motel. They're to come with me. Dennis started pulling his gun from the holster. Price's head snapped towards him. I don't know what kind of fool game you're... He stopped, staring at the gun he held. It wasn't a gun anymore. It was an oozing mass of hot rubber. Dennis cried out and slung the thing from his hand. The molten mass hit the floor with a pulpy splat. I'm leaving now. Price's voice was calm. Thank you for the coffee. He walked past Dennis towards the door. Dennis grasped a bottle of ketchup from the counter. Cheryl cried out, don't! But it was too late. Dennis was already swinging the bottle. It hit the back of Price's skull and burst open, spewing ketchup everywhere. Price staggered forward, his knees buckling. When he went down, his skull hit the floor with the noise like a watermelon being dropped. His body began jerking involuntarily. Got him, Dennis shouted triumphantly. Got that crazy bastard, didn't I? Lindsay was holding the little girl in her arms. The boy craned his neck to see. Ray said nervously, You didn't kill him, did you? He's not dead, I told him. I looked over at the gun. It was solid again. Dennis scooped it up and aimed at his price, whose body continued to jerk. Just like Howdy Doody, I thought. Then Price stopped moving. He's dead. Cheryl's voice was near frantic. Oh, God, you killed him, Dennis. Dennis probed the body of the body of the toe body with the toe of his boot and bent down. Nah, his eyes were moving back and forth behind the lids. Dennis touched the wrist to check the pulse, then abruptly pulled his hand away. Jesus Christ, he's as cold as a meat locker. He took Price's pulse and whistled, going like a racehorse to the derby. I tossed the plate on the counter where the Mirage steak has been. My fingers came away slightly greasy and I could smell the cooked meat on them. At that instant, Price twitched. Dennis scuttled away from him as a crab. Like a crab, Price made a gasping, choking noise. What did he say? He said something. No, he didn't. Dennis struck him in the ribs with his pistol. Come on, get up. Get him out of here, I said. I don't want... Charles shushed me. Listen, can you hear that? I only heard the roar and the crash of the storm. Don't you hear it? She asked me. Her eyes were getting scared and glassy. Yes, Ray said. Yes, listen. And I did hear something. Over the noise of the keening wind, it was the distant chuck, 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 steadily growing louder and closer. The wind covered the noise for a minute, then it came back. Chuck, 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 almost overhead. It's a helicopter, Ray peered through the window. Somebody's got a helicopter out there. Nobody can fly a chopper in the storm, Dennis told them. The noise of the rotor swelled and swelled, swelled and faded and stopped. On the floor, Price shivered and began to contort into a fetal position. His mouth opened, his face twisted in what appeared to be agony. Thunder spoke. A red fireball rose up from the woods across the road and hung lazily in the air for a few seconds before it descended towards the diner. As it fell, the fireball exploded soundlessly into a white glaring eye of light that almost blinded me. 
Price said something in a garbled, panicked tone. His eyes were tightly closed, and he had squeezed his arms up around his knees. Dennis rose to his feet. He squinted at the eye of light, fell toward the parking lot, and winked out in a puddle of water. Another fireball floated up from the woods and again blossomed into a painful glare. Dennis turned towards me. I heard him. His voice was raspy. He said, Charlie's in the light. As the second flare fell to the ground and illuminated the parking lot, I thought I saw figures crossing the road. They walked stiff-legged in an eerie cadence. The flare went out. Wake him up, I heard myself whisper. Dennis, dear God, wake him up. Dennis stared stupidly at me, and I started to jump across the counter to get to price myself. A gun mm -hmm. flame leapt in the parking lot. Barks marched across the concrete. I shouted, get down, and twisted around to push Cheryl back behind the safety of the counter. What the hell, Dennis said. He didn't finish. There was the metallic thumping of bullets hitting the gas pumps and the cars. I knew that if the gas blew, we were all dead. My truck shuddered with the impact of slugs, and I saw the whole thing explode as I ducked behind the counter. Then the windows blew in over the god-awful crash, and the diner was full of flying glass, swirling wind, and sheets of rain. I heard Lindsay scream, and the kids were crying, and I was shouting something to myself. The lights had gone out, and the only illumination was the reflection of red neon off the concrete and the glow of the fluorescence over the gas pumps. Bolts whacked into the wall, and crockery shattered as if it had been hit with a hammer. Napkins and sugar packets were flying everywhere. Cheryl was holding on to me as if her fingers were nails sunk into my bones. Her eyes were wide and dazed, and she kept trying to speak. Her mouth was working, but nothing came out. There was another explosion as one of the other cars blew. The whole place shook, and I almost puked with fear. Another hail of bullets hit the wall. They were tracers, and they jumped and ricocheted like white-hot cigarette butts. One of them sang off the edge of a shelf and fell to the floor about three feet away from me. The glowing slug began to fade, like the beer can and the mirage steak. I put it in my hand out to find it, but all I felt was splinters, glass, and crockery. A phantom bullet, I thought, real enough to cause damage and death and then gone. You don't want me around here, Mr. Trooper Price had warned, not with a body count I've got in my head. The firing stopped. I got free of Cheryl and said, you stay right here. And I looked up over the counter and saw my truck and the station wagon on fire, the flames being whipped up by the wind. Rain slapped me across the face as it swept in where the wind glass used to be. I saw Price lying and still huddled on the floor with pieces of glass all around him. His hands were clawing in the air and in the flickering neon. His face was contorted, his eyes still closed. The pool of ketchup on his head made him look like his skull had been split open. He was peering into hell and I averted my eyes before I lost my own mind. Ray and Lindsay and the two children huddled under the table of their booth. The woman was sobbing brokenly. I looked at Dennis lying a few feet from Price. He was sprawled on his face and there were four holes punched in his back. It was not ketchup that ran in rivulets around Dennis's body. His right arm was outflung and the fingers twitched around the gun he gripped. Another flare sailed up from the woods like a 4th of July sparkler. When the light brightened, I saw them. At least five figures, maybe more. They were crouched over coming across the parking lot. But slowly, the speed of nightmares, their clothes flapped and hung around them, and the flare's light glanced off their helmets. They were carrying weapons, rifles, I guess. I couldn't see their faces, and that was for the best. On the floor, Price moaned. I heard him say, light in the light. The flare hung right over the diner, and then I knew it was going on. We were in the light. We were all caught in Price's nightmare, and the night crawlers that Price had left in the mud were fighting the battle again, the same way it had been fought in the Pines Haven Motor Inn. Nightcrawlers had come back to life, powered by Price's guilt and whatever that howdy-doody shit had done to him. And we were in the light, where Charlie had been out in that rice paddy. There was a noise like castanets clicking. 
Gouts of fire arced through the broken windows and thudded into the counter. The stools squealed as they hit and were spun. The cash register rang and the drawer popped open and the entire register blew apart and bills and coins scattered. I ducked my head, but a wisp of fire, I don't know what, a bit of metal or glass maybe, sliced my left cheek open from ear to upper lip. I felt the whole... I felt the floor behind the counter with blood running down my face. A blast shook the rest of the cups, saucers, and plates off the shelf. The whole roof buckled inward, throwing loose ceiling tiles, light fixtures, and pieces of metal framework. We're all going to die. I knew it right then. Those things were going to destroy us. But I thought of the pistol in Dennis's hand and a price lying near the door. If we were caught in Price's nightmare and the blow from the ketchup bottles had broken something in his skull, then the only way to stop this dream was to kill him. I'm no hero. I was about to piss my pants, but I knew I was the only one who could move. I jumped up and scrambled over the counter, falling beside Dennis and wrenching at that pistol. Even in death, Dennis had a strong grip. Another blast came along the wall to my right. The heat of it scorched me, and the shockwave skittered me across the floor through grass, glass and rain and blood. But I had that pistol in my hand. I heard Ray shout, Look out! In the doorway, silhouetted by flames, was a skeletal thing wearing muddy green rags wore a dented in helmet and carried a corroded slime-covered rifle. Its face was gaunt and shadowy. The features hidden behind a scum of rice paddy muck. It began to lift the rifle to fire at me. Slowly, slowly. I got the safety off the pistol and fired twice without aiming. A spark left off the helmet as one of the bullets was deflected. But the figure staggered backward into the configuration of the station wagon, where it seemed to melt into ooze before it vanished. More tracers were coming in. Cheryl's Volkswagen shuddered the tires blowing out in almost unison. The state trooper car was already bullet-ridden and sitting on flats. Another night crawler, this one without a helmet and with slime covering the skull where the hair had been, rose up beyond the window and fired its rifle. I heard the bullet whine past my ear, and as I took aim, I saw the bony finger tightening on the trigger again. A skillet flew over my head and hit the thing's shoulder, spoiling a theme. For an instant, the skillet stuck in the night crawler's body, as if the figure itself was made out of mud. I fired once, twice, and saw pieces of matter fly from the thing's chest. What might have been a mouth opened in a soundless scream, and the thing skittered out of sight. I looked around. Cheryl was standing behind the counter, weaving on her feet, her face white with shock. Get down, I shouted, and she ducked for cover. I crawled to Price and shook him hard. His eyes would not open. Wake up, I begged. Wake up, damn you. And then I pressed the barrel of the pistol against Price's head. Dear God, I didn't want to kill anybody, but I knew I was going to have to blow the night crawlers right out of his brain. I hesitated too long. Something smashed into my left collarbone. I heard the bone snap like a broomstick being broken. The force of the shot slid me back against the counter and jammed me between two bullet-popped stools. I lost the gun, and there was a roaring fire in my head that deafened me. I don't know how long I was out. My left arm felt like dead meat. All the cars in the lot were burning, and there was a hole in the diner's roof that a tractor-trailer truck could have dropped through. Rain was sweeping onto my face, and when I swiped my eyes clear, I saw them standing over Price. There were eight of them. The two I thought I'd killed were back. They trailed weeds in their boots and ragged clothes were covered with mud. They stood in silence, staring down at their livid com living comrade. I was too tired to scream. I couldn't even whisper. I just watched. Price's hands lifted into the air. He reached for the night crawlers, and then his eyes opened. His pupils were dead white, surrounded by scarlet. End it, he whispered. End it. One of the night crawlers aimed its rifle and fired. Price jerked. Another right night crawler fired, and then they were all firing point blank into Price's body. Price thrashed and clutched at his head, but there was no blood. The phantom bullets weren't hitting him. The night crawlers began to ripple and fade. I saw flames of burning cars with their bodies. <clears throat> the figures became transparent, floating in vague outlines. 
Price had awakened too fast in the Pines Haven Motor Inn, I realized if he had remained asleep, the creatures of his nightmares would have ended it there at that Florida hotel. They were killing him in front of me, or he was allowing them to end it all, and I think that's what he must have wanted for a long time. He shuddered, his mouth releasing a half moan, half sigh. It almost sounded like relief. The night crawlers vanished. Price didn't move. I saw his face. His eyes were closed, and I think he must have found peace at last. A trucker hauling lumber from Mobile to Birmingham saw the burning cars. I don't even remember what he looked like. Ray was cut up by glass, but his wife and kids were okay. Physically, I mean mentally, I couldn't say. Cheryl went to the hospital for a while. I got a postcard from her with the Golden Gate Bridge on the front. She promised she'd write and let me know how she was doing, but I doubt if I'll ever hear from her. She was the best waitress I ever had, and I wished her luck. Police asked me a thousand questions, and I told the story the same way every time. Found out later that no bullets or shrapnel were ever dug out of the walls or the cars or Dennis's body, just like the case of that motel massacre. There was no bullet in me, though my collarbone was snapped clean in two. Price died of a mass brain hemorrhage. It looked, the police told me, as if it had exploded in his skull. I closed the diner. Farm life's fine. Alma understands, and we don't talk about it. But I never showed the police what I found, and I don't know exactly why not. I picked up Price's wallet in the mess. Behind a picture of a smiling young woman holding a baby, there was a folded piece of paper. On that paper were the names of four men. Beside one name, Price had written the word, Dangerous. I found four other non-vets who can do the same thing, Price said. I sat up at light and night a lot, thinking about that and looking at those names. Those men had gotten a dose of that howdy-doody shit in a foreign place they hadn't wanted to be, fighting a war that turned out to be one of those crossroads of nightmare and reality. I've changed my mind about Nam because I understand now the worst of the fighting is still going on in the battlefields of memory. A Yankee, who called himself Tompkins, came to my house one May morning and flashed me an ID that said he worked for a Veterans Association. He was very soft-spoken and polite, but had deep-set eyes that were almost black, and he never blinked. He asked me all about Price and seemed real interested in picking my brain of every detail. I told him the police had the story and I couldn't add any more to it. Then I turned the tables and asked him about Howdy Doody. He smiled in a puzzled kind of way like, and said he'd never heard of any chemical defoliant called that. No such thing, he said. Like I said, he was very polite. But I know the shape of a gun tucked into a shoulder holster. Tompkins was wearing one under his seersucker coat. I never could find any Veterans Association that knew anything about him either. Maybe I should go give my list of names to the police. Maybe I will, or maybe I'll try to find those four men myself and try to make some sense out of what's being hidden. I don't think Press was evil. No, he was just scared, and who can blame a man for running from his own nightmares? I like to believe in the end, Price had the courage to face the nightcrawlers, and in committing suicide, he saved our lives. The newspapers, of course, never got the real story. They called Price a non-vet, gone crazy, and killed six people in a Florida motel, then killed a state trooper in a shootout at Big Bob's Diner and Gas Stop. But I know where Price is buried. They sell little American flags at the Five and Dime in Mobile. I'm alive, and I can spare the change. And then I've got to find out how much courage I have. That was very long. But different. It was different. It was long and slow and meandering. I kind of liked it. I've never really read anything like that. You know? I don't know. But that was the last story I have. Unless anybody else has a story. <laughs> no. Because I don't, I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to do politics. I, I can't. 
I've read you creepy stories and horror stories and we talked about horror films and I think for once it was kind of a lot of fun and it was pertinent to the holiday. This is my favorite holiday. I don't want to ruin it. Oh, if you want another horror film about it's not about um veterans, it's about active soldiers. There's a film okay. called Death Watch. World War One trenches. You Quite know good. what I was what I was gonna say is um one of my favorite zombie horror movies is a movie called Dead Snow. Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen that? Well, no, I haven't seen it but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, Dead Snow uh uh, Nazi zombies. Yes, <laughs> it's actually um, it's actually pretty good. I remember sitting through the whole thing. And it's it's vicious and bloody and gory, and you get to the end, and somebody's getting their just desserts, and you're like, good, you know, I, I like that. That's a satisfying ending for me. But uh, I guess that's it for this evening. Happy Halloween, you guys! I hope you have a good holiday with your family. And uh, I'll see you with more scary stories of the true kind next week. Good night.